and surrounding communities. It's 7 o'clock at night. That's right, 1900 hours. And you're listening to the Polo Salguero Show, where the heat is on and we educate our community through interviews with professionals. We will be talking with uh, Professor Francisco Fagundes from uh, UMass Amherst. And we're going to be talking about uh, Portuguese literature and, in particular, uh, a book uh, that was also a play through uh, a Portuguese gate and kind of just talking about Portuguese literature. And then later on, if we have enough time, we'll get into uh, kind of a, a, a unique um, a situation that Professor uh, Fagundes was in. Uh, but first, uh, Professor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Paul. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on the uh, Paul Salgado Show. Greetings to you and to your listeners. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, to be completely honest, my um, kind of uh, appreciation for literature started uh, probably junior year of college uh, when I took, which I never, when I went to George Washington University for a little bit, and I took a, a Chinese literature course in translation, and I said, there is no way I'm going to like this course. And um, the professor, it was amazing because we ended up talking, and I still talk to this professor today and kind of talked about Faldo in, in general and then um, kind of these, uh, these Portuguese um, people who were actually translating Chinese po- poetry back in the day. And that's kind of what got me into literature. And then wonderful, I, wonderful. Yeah, and then after a while I was looking up, you know, Portuguese literature online, kind of, reading about it, and then I came across, uh, well, one, my sophomore year, I did kind of projects involving Portuguese immigration, then later on, I uh, got more into the literature side of it, and I came across uh, through a Portuguese gate. One, uh, I really, I, I, I despise the word Portuguese, to be honest, but uh, even people, yeah, even, uh, I'm sure my family listeners are like, I can't believe he's saying that, because he, I can't stand it, but uh, in any case... Uh, for some of our listeners who may or may not know you, could you give us a little bit of uh, background on who you are and what you've done and what you currently do? Okay. Um, my name is Francisco Cota Fagundes. Uh, I was born in Terceira. I immigrated to California in 1963 with an elementary school education, four years, which is what most of us had. Worked as a milker for three and a half years in California, in the San Joaquin Valley. A cow broke my back. I went to L.A. and worked as a dishwasher for a few months. Um, met a woman who advised me to go to college. Went to community college in January of 1967. Transferred to UCLA in 70. In 76, I received my Ph.D. in Hispanic Languages and Literatures, and got a position that same year as a professor of Portuguese and Spanish at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, from where I just retired after a little over 40 years of teaching. I am still married to the same woman, Maria de Ulinda Silveira, ne Silveira um, whom I met in Coimbra at a summer course where the two of us were uh, studying. She is uh, an alumna of the University of Rhode Island. And that pretty much sums it up. Alrighty. And uh, so, again, so uh, as we talked, we're kind of, uh, today's segment will be, be kind of based around um, the book that we, we mentioned. Uh, but in general, could you tell us a little bit about kind of what has been written? Uh, in general, as far as uh, Portuguese uh, immigrant autobiographies or biographies in general, kind of what's the landscape look like for 
uh, these uh, these books in general? Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, let us uh, all agree that we are separating uh, Portuguese literature, that is to say, the literature of Portugal, the Azores, Madeira, uh, that goes back to the 13th century and is one of the richest literatures of any small country in Europe, uh, from Portuguese American literature, which also uh, might include, we might decide to include Canada, uh, and which goes back to the 19th century and uh, is very, uh, very vibrant today. It is a small literature, but there are a number of writers, and I would like to distinguish between uh, that literature written in Portuguese, uh, usually by people who came here already educated, or who became educated here, like me. Uh, I am part of that little group. And then there is another group uh, of writers. Uh, these are very well known in the United States, uh, who are actually ethnics. They, they are uh, children of Portuguese, or they are partly Portuguese, and they write about Portuguese uh, uh, themes, uh, Charles Felix is one of them. Now, specifically about the autobiographies or memoirs, uh, there are about ten of them that uh, are either about the immigrant experience or uh, close enough to the immigrant experience, uh, even though their authors might have been already born in the United States. Uh, there are a few others, but these are from people who are already quite uh, uh, distant from the culture. Now, uh, these uh, ten autobiographies are divided uh, about equally between women uh, and men authors. Uh, the first was published in 1921 by Charles Peters, and these names, of course, are Portuguese names anglicized. Uh, he was a former whaleman in New London, Connecticut, and in 1850, he joined the Cool Rush in California. He discovered a mine, but never became rich, uh, but lived until he was 96. He published his autobiography in 1921. I translated it into Portuguese. It's been published in Portugal. Uh, there have been uh, numerous articles and uh, reviews, curiously, uh, in major newspapers, and even uh, a master's degree uh, thesis and a doctoral dissertation written on some of these autobiographies. I had a student uh, from Hudson, actually, who was writing on these 10 uh, autobiographies. He was writing his doctoral dissertation when, unfortunately, uh, he passed away. So these are the life stories, and today we are going to talk a little bit more about one of them, uh, probably uh, one of the best, if not the best, which is uh, through Portuguese. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're going to take um, we're going to take our first break uh, here in the studio, and then we have. Um we have the uh, 4.30 break, uh, obviously. So we're going to take a quick break now, and then we'll come back because I just I don't want to uh, start a topic and then in the middle of it have to take, uh, take our break. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after these messages. 
On January 10th at 4.30 p.m. at the Attleboro Library, Gabriela Vieira of Webster Bank will present a workshop titled Preventing Elder Financial Abuse. The incidence of financial exploitation of elders and vulnerable adults is growing nationally. Fraudulent telemarketing schemes and scam artists increasingly target elders, resulting in significant financial losses. This workshop will provide an overview of the signs and symptoms of financial exploitation and fraud and strategies for protecting assets. If you are interested in attending, you can call the Attleboro Council on Aging at 774-203-1900. For over 47 years, Amigo Inc. has been offering services and programs for children and adults with autism spectrum disorders and other disabilities. Located at 33 Perry Avenue in Attleboro, Amigo has been committed to building vital relationships while expanding their community ties on the local level. Amigo provides day programs, transitional planning, and a continuum of services to support all ages. For more information, you can visit their website at AmigoInc.org. As we go into the holiday season, we immerse ourselves in stories of this time of year that remind us of what really is important in life and to cherish every moment. This week on ACS, watch this year's Bishop Fiend's production of It's a Wonderful Life, a story of a man down on his luck confronted with the question, what would life be like if I was never born? You can watch this program and all of our quality programs from around the area in high definition on AACS.com. Welcome back, folks, to the Paul Sargero Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock uh, this, after, this evening. Uh, but currently we are uh, we're talking with uh, uh, Dr. Francisco uh, Fagunz, uh, who was a retired uh, professor from UMass Amherst, and we're going to be talking about Portuguese literature. You know, uh, you know my parents immigrated uh, at, uh, from uh, uh, the Azores, my father's from Terceira, my mother's from San Miguel. So it's always, I really enjoy reading, uh, you know, literature like this because you can really relate to it in um, in some in some respect. Uh, but uh, professor, could you could you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, you know you mentioned well, as we're talking about uh, through a Portuguese uh, gate, kind of give us its history, kind of summary of the book, and then um, and then we'll, we'll just go on from there. Okay. Uh, through Portuguese Gate, uh, and Charles uh, Felix uses that metaphor, knowing very well that it is a slur, uh, but it is an extremely realistic book. He wants to give the history, uh, including the history that is not so nice. Um, through Portuguese Gate, published in 2004, is unique because of the quality of the writing. It's also unique for blending two genres. It is an autobiography and a biography. It's the story of a boy growing up in the north end of New Bedford during the Depression, the 1930s, uh, going to high school, then college in Arbor, Michigan, where he meets and marries his beloved wife, Barbara, then going on to California, where he finishes a degree at uh, Stanford and becomes an elementary school teacher. The biographical part uh, of the book, uh, on the other hand, focuses on his father, and these two uh, are blended together, that is to say, the autobiographical and biographical part. He is a cobbler in New Bedford who immigrated from Stubo, Portugal, in, in 1915. To me, the most outstanding component of this uh, autobiography biography is the relationship depicted between the child protagonist and his dad. 
the principal vehicle of the representation of this relationship is storytelling. This book is a marvelous, absolutely marvelous example of the recreation of traditional orality, of telling stories, evoking a time when most immigrants were illiterate and communicated orally, that is to say, word of mouth. Charles is a master of recreate, uh, recreating conversational storytelling. No writer I know surpasses him on this. That's why I place him at the top of the heap when it comes to Portuguese immigrant autobiographies. The experiences of Charles' immigrant family are shared by all the ten autobiographies. All us, all of us immigrants went basically by, uh, through the same common experiences. It's not in the what that Charles distinguishes himself primarily, but in the how. That is, uh, the how he recreates the immigrant experience in New Bedford at that time. Life in New Bedford during the Depression was Charles' specialty, not only in this book, but in the two novels that he also published, respectively, in 2005 and 2008. Absolutely. There's a, I'd like to read uh, a passage that I, uh, it's probably one of my favorites because there's one thing I've always uh, wondered when I think about kind of the immigrant experience, and that is uh, the moment someone's leaving their native land and how they are, what that situation must be like. And there's a passage in it, and it says, I'll quote it, uh, but eventually I had enough money to pay for my passage over here. I was to take a train to Lisbon where the boat would be. My last day there, I packed my uh, valise and my father uh, walked me to the train station. He seemed sad. I don't think I'll ever see you again, he said. I don't think you'll ever come back here again. I looked at him, but I didn't say anything. Then he stopped talking. Just a few brief sentences. That was all I had of his early life and that was all I would uh, ever have. That was, uh, you know, uh, to me, it's just, you're reading this book and it, the detail in it, it really puts you in that place. And that, that's kind of one of my favorite things about it is. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, all uh, autobiographies uh, that deal with the immigrant as opposed to the ethnic experience um, talks about the leaving because... Uh, even for me, who left in 63, let alone for Charles' father, who left in 1915, uh, you left and you knew that the chances of your going back were fairly slim, not only because uh, passages cost a lot of money, but also uh, we, especially young men, left uh, usually to avoid going to the military service, which is uh, what happened in my case, and so you couldn't go back until you were much, much older. Or you knew or suspected you would not be able to go back because you were going to, you know, uh, constitute your own family and so on. And, and, and going back uh, then, uh, as opposed to today, cost a lot of money. Today it's relatively, uh, relatively inexpensive to go to Portugal. But um, but for a long, long time, it was uh, extremely difficult. I, I only went back, I only went back nine years after, and I went back nine years after because someone paid a scholarship for me to go study uh, for six weeks in, in, in Coimbra. 
so the leaving, that is the departure scene, uh, and then the scene of arrival in America and, and being shocked uh, with what you encountered, what you saw in front of you, uh, given that you were, uh, you know, imbued with, with dreams from returning immigrants. And so in America was a kind of paradise. And, uh, and then you got here, and as an immigrant, you faced the kind of job, the kind of work that you were going to do. Uh, it was very shocking, as also was very shocking and usually, and usually represented in autobiographies. When you returned to your beloved country, which became a kind of paradise, they were inverted, the paradises, because you dreamt with your country that things, after all the suffering in the, in the, in the new country, you imagine if I could only go back, things would be wonderful. And then you get back, and when you get back, you realize that you don't belong anymore. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, I don't know how it's like, you know, obviously that, that makes perfect sense. And then sometimes, like, I know when I visit the Azores, uh, and, you, know, you land in St. Michael, and then you get off the, the, the airplane, and it just, it smells different. It's, it's, I don't know, I really enjoy being in the Azores, but when you really look at the lifestyles, you really understand why, um, you know, one, I, I enjoy my time there, obviously, it's such, it's peaceful, it's uh, laid back, but in terms of, you know, opportunity, we look at the U.S. versus um, kind of the immigrant experience. And we understand it. But, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Charles's father came here in 1915. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about kind of how the immigrant experience uh, maybe changed throughout, uh, obviously, the 1900s, throughout the, you know, the 50s and 60s? What was it? Did, they, did those decades ever defer in terms of people's experiences? Or kind of mm -hmm. what did that situation really look like for immigrants coming to America? Yeah, uh that's, of course, a question that would require a book to fully explain, but uh, several of the autobiographies focus uh, on that, uh, both in the West Coast, uh, and some of them go as far back as the middle of the 19th century, and, uh, and of course, in the East Coast, going back to uh, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, in the East Coast, work in the cotton mills of New Bedford uh, was the focus, for example, of Laurinda Andrade's The Open Door, published in 68. Uh, a 17-year-old woman who immigrated from Terceira in 1917 uh, by herself, without her parents, worked in the cotton mills of New Bedford, attended high school in New Bedford, uh, went on to Pembroke College, uh, Brown University, uh, was the director of a Portuguese community newspaper, newspaper in New Jersey, was the secretary of the Portuguese uh, embassy uh, in Washington, D.C., and then came back to New Bedford and uh, founded the first uh, Portuguese language program at New Bedford High School and became a teacher, an extremely successful teacher. So in a way... Those of us who became teachers or professors of Portuguese owe a debt of gratitude to this woman because she was the first one to establish a Portuguese language program at a public, at a public school, uh, the high school in New Bedford. I translated her autobiography into Portuguese. It's coming out uh, in a month or so uh, in Portugal. 
Wonderful. Now, if, if, if I had a little time, I would like to say a little more about uh, immigration uh, afterwards to follow your question. Uh, may I continue? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we are, so we have, a, we have a, our next break is at 4.30, and then we do 4.45. Okay. Now, immigration was severely reduced uh, in 1924 when racist laws were passed in the U.S. Congress, practically eliminating immigration to people from Southern Europe, including, of course, Portugal while leaving the gates open to Scandinavians and other white people, quote-unquote. In 1958, however, there is the eruption of the Caplinus volcano in the island of Fayal, where my wife is from. Uh, And John Kennedy, then a congressman, and John Pastore from Rhode Island, introduced a bill called the Azorian Refugee Act, uh, that passed and opened the doors to victims of the volcano, and of course, a lot of other people joined who had absolutely nothing to do with Fayal. And uh, this wave that goes from about 1958 into the mid 70s, when the revolution comes to Portugal and people stop uh, immigrating or stop immigrating so much, this was the largest wave. Um, it's estimated that that probably a hundred and or hundred and fifty or, or, or close to that number of Portuguese immigrated from the islands and from mainland Portugal to the United States. It was a huge, huge wave, and and we owe it really to Kennedy and to and to Pastore because uh, prior to uh, to that time that is to say starting in 1924 uh, they had uh, curtailed uh, immigration uh, it was for racist reasons to people from southern europe and uh, there, there was a quota you know a few people could come but in the case of portugal i don't think that it amounted to 500 people to 500 people a year uh, so, uh, obviously, immigrants uh, did different things, usually according to the island they were from. They, they went to where their people were. People from Pico became uh, fishermen in San Diego and got into the tuna industry. People from Terceira and San Jorge went to the San Joaquin Valley and got into the dairy industry. Uh, people from San Miguel usually came to New Bedford or to Fall River and worked in factories uh, and so on. So the pattern, it's a pattern that is, uh, that is basically uh, followed by, by all peoples from all corners of Europe. You go where your own is and you form a little community and you sort of uh, lean on the structures already created by the earlier immigrants uh, language and so on, and that's why it's easy to find people here who have lived in the United States. Uh, they are now passing on, but uh, my uh, in-laws, for example, who lived in Providence uh, for uh, close to, to 50 years, and they did not speak English. They didn't have to. They didn't have to learn English because everything that they did from going to the to the market from uh, going to church from whatever uh, was done uh, in Portuguese
Portuguese. You know, they live in Fox Point. Fox Point at the time was 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 a Portuguese community, and uh, and so that happened in California uh, as well. Uh, a few of us, of course, uh, stragglers, we moved out of the Portuguese community and went on to other places. I went to L.A., uh, went to school, went to college, and so on, and then never lived in a, quote-unquote, Portuguese community uh, again. One common denominator is uh, immigration, let's not, uh, let, let's not forget, is always an extremely an extremely painful experience, especially to the older folks, especially to our parents. Uh, we who are a little bit younger, although I was already almost 19, but my wife, for example, was nine years old. If you are a child, you pick up the language very quickly, uh, you integrate very quickly, uh, but if you are already uh, approaching middle age and you immigrate, especially back uh, back in the early decades of the uh, of the 20th century, and of course, uh, not to mention the 19th century, uh, when it was even worse, it was an extremely, extremely painful uh, experience. So, uh, I think it behooves uh, young people who were born in this country uh, to uh, be thankful and think of their parents and their grandparents who immigrated and went uh, through huge sacrifices for the sake of their children and their grandchildren. Uh, Being an immigrant, especially if you are unskilled and uneducated, uh, is never easy. It was particularly hard for people from the Azores. We had no skills. For the most part, we had no education in our own in our own language, so we did the most menial of jobs, and uh, very often we were uh, actually discriminated not by so-called Americans, but by our own people who knew where we were coming from and who were on this side of the Atlantic waiting for us and to try to exploit us as much as possible. That happened to me. I, too, wrote an autobiography, and I tell the story of how I was exploited by my own people Absolutely. in the San Joaquin Valley, in the dairies of the San Joaquin Valley. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with Dr. Uh, Francisco Fergunz, and we're going to talk about, I have a couple more questions about, uh, through Portuguese Gate, we're talking about immigration kind of as a whole, but we're going to take a quick break, uh, and then we'll be right back after these messages, so stick around. The Attleboro Public Library is beginning a new series called Book Chat with a Librarian. Reader's Advisory Librarian Elise LaForge will be available at the library on Thursday, December 13th from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m., Saturday, December 22nd from 1 to 2 p.m., and on Friday, December 28th from 10 to 11 a.m. to help you find your next great read. Whether you're looking to try something new or looking for something similar to an old favorite, Elise can help. Stop by the lobby on any of these days to have a book chat with a librarian. For more information and to see other events happening at the library, you can visit attleborolibrary.org or call 508-222-0157. Amigo Inc. is currently looking for qualified individuals to help fill various positions within the company. Located at 33 Perry Avenue, Amigo is offering full and part-time positions in addition to per diem opportunities. 
Amigo offers first, second, and third shift availability to help fit your needs and theirs. When you join Amigo, you will help to create a positive client experience for all the individuals we have the privilege of serving on a daily basis. For more information on all positions available, please call 508-455-6200 or visit our website at amigoinc.org. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock today. Uh, we're currently, we're talking with um, Dr. Francisco for Guns about uh, kind of, well, we kind of were talking about Portuguese immigration in general before we left. And there's something uh, you had mentioned, Professor, that it always fascinated me, and I've always talked about this because people, uh, my friends will always say, I don't understand how, come on, people have been here so many years and they can't speak English, blah, blah, blah. And I go, you know what? They Well, and you, you touched upon it, and that is they really never had to. You know, if you're immigrating to, you know, for instance, um, you know, Fall River, you know, where you're going to Shav's Market and, and you're really – if you don't, if you don't, if you don't speak English, you're probably okay in Shops Market because you can probably still get served. And uh, it's kind of you just immigrated to the, you kind of formed your own community, kind of brought your own traditions again, and you really didn't have to worry about learning that new language. And then, uh, you know, it always fascinated me. It's like, all right, well, and later on, you kind of see the challenges that people may face uh, because of that. But it's, I just wanted to mention that because uh, it's something I, I was always interested in. And then when you touched upon, I just wanted to mention that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, so going back to uh, uh, Through a Portuguese Gate, what are some of, uh, like, your favorite parts in this, uh, in this book and, and why are they your, your favorite? Or why do you really enjoy this book in particular? Well, there, there are so many, uh, and they are precisely uh, passages uh, related to storytelling, which is something that I sort of specialized in as well. Uh, I selected a passage uh, to read. I'll read it very uh, slowly so that your, uh, your, your listeners can, can appreciate uh, if anybody should have the book. Uh, handy. Uh, it's on page 82, 83, and it has to do with the narrator, Charles, uh, describing what, telling stories. And these stories were not made-up stories. They were stories about uh, what happened when someone came uh, to his uh, cobbler shop, uh, about it, what he had seen, about what he had experienced in the street, walking to his shop, or returning home from his shop. Um, And uh, the narrator, Charles, uh, describes uh, one such uh, storytelling uh, session uh, in these terms. Quote, It was a story like no other. He glowed when he told it. He had difficulty suppressing his excitement enough to tell it. This was capitalism as pure joy. He radiated a touching happiness, and like a particularly loving encounter, he spun it out as long as he could. He didn't want it to end. When he came to the last word, he was devastated. In a heavenly world, he never would have come to the last word. End quote. It's magnificent, and it gives an idea of the joy that both Charles, uh, who was a young person, a child, in the beginning of the book, and his dad, 
who loved to tell stories and had these sessions with his son and had these sessions uh, at home with his family. In fact, that's what jo- uh, Charles uh, uh, Joe, uh, the father, uh, used uh, as a teaching tool because uh, those stories he told about what had happened uh, on that particular day or, or in the recent couple of days uh, in the shop was his way uh, to teach his children because the, the stories were not purposeless. They, they, they were uh, stories with a message, with a, with a moral and, and and so uh, that's that's what I remember also from the Azores. Uh, people uh, people use stories, everyday stories. They are called conversational stories. You are talking with someone, and and, and then you tell them in the form of a story something that happened. But you 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 build it up and so on. Uh, that was a teaching tool. Uh, that's how uh, people educated their children uh, was by turning into a story. Uh, something that today is a bit of information that we share with our with our children, or or some kind of remark, or some kind of of, of uh, uh, you know telling them what to do or not to do, and so on. Uh, uh, here, it's done in stories because in a world of orality, that is where everybody uh, uh, is illiterate. Uh, you, you have to, to entertain yourself, and you have to find a way. So, in a way, literature uh, always exists, and that's why uh, even in the illiterate countries, there is an oral, uh, an oral tradition. An oral tradition is their form of literature. All peoples have a literature. It may be written, if they are a literate society, or it may be oral if they are not, but everybody has a literature because humanity cannot do without it. Absolutely. And, um, you know, prior to our our break, uh, you had mentioned that your autobiography, you also mentioned kind of uh, briefly your experiences and uh, kind of the difficulties. Could you tell us, uh, you know, since we're talking about stories, could you tell us uh, maybe a story or an encounter that you had where you experienced, um, you know, how you kind of mentioned like the, uh, you know, your own kind going against uh, yourself or whatnot. Could you tell us uh, kind of an experience maybe you encountered or had? Uh, well, uh, I have so many, so many experiences in my sto- in my uh, in my book, in my autobiography. Uh, I worked for um, these guys. There were two brothers. They were very nice to me in many ways, but uh, one of them was a little uh, uh, a little odd. Uh, he had been to the war in in Korea, and uh, he liked to play jokes and so on. And I became for him. Uh, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, play, toy of sorts. And uh, uh, I lived in the trailer house that they had uh, set up for me on the ranch. And uh, I had to use an outhouse. And one day, he, uh, I, I was in the, in, in the outhouse, and he tied a rope around it. So when I tried to get out, I couldn't, and I became disoriented, and eventually he allowed me, uh, let me out, and uh, and he was laughing, and 
and I was I was close to I was having a panic attack. I was I was I was in tears. Um, so these are kind of little vignettes that I still remember. Then there were uh, moments, for example, once I went. Uh, I knew a little bit of English because I had had some lessons in English from uh, from the old country, uh, from the Azores, and uh, a cousin of mine. Uh, asked me to go uh, to this insurance company uh, and and help him interpret for him. Uh, he wanted learners, and so uh, when I got there, uh, I told the uh, lady uh, who uh, attended us, who uh, uh, who was helping us, that I wanted to buy security for my cousin. Because in Portuguese, the word uh, for insurance is seguro. And I did not know the word insurance. And so I assumed there had to be something close to security. And she looked at me and she said, uh, wouldn't we all, dear, wouldn't we all? In other words, she was, she was mocking me. She was making fun of me because I had re- used the wrong word. And, of course, as, a, as an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old uh, I was I was embarrassed. I was deeply hurt. So these kinds of little things are um, are experiences that my uh, autobiography registers. Uh, in another instance, I went I went to pick up a tire we had left at a gas station uh, uh, to be fixed. It was uh, it was punctured, uh, it was flat, and. Uh, and I left it there, and when I picked it up, I went to pick it up, the uh, the fellow, who actually had a Portuguese name, had written on the wall of the tire, Greenhorn. And that uh, that expression, you know, apropos slurs like Portuguese and, and pork and beans and that sort of thing, uh, hurt me so deeply that I found myself having an argument with a guy uh, to the point where he threatened to call the cops on me. Uh, I guess he never knew how much uh, that hurt to an immigrant. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with uh, Professor uh, Francisco Fergunz talking about kind of uh, the, the book Through a Portuguese Gate, Portuguese Immigration in General, kind of the life experiences that he's had. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back. We'll start to wrap things up. We'll talk about maybe some current projects, and um, maybe if we have enough time, we'll uh, talk a little bit more about uh, Charles uh, uh, Fleeks. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. On January 10th at 4.30 p.m. at the Attleboro Library, Gabriela Vieira of Webster Bank will present a workshop titled Preventing Elder Financial Abuse. The incidence of financial exploitation of elders and vulnerable adults is growing nationally. Fraudulent telemarketing schemes and scam artists increasingly target elders, resulting in significant financial losses. This workshop will provide an overview of the signs and symptoms of financial exploitation and fraud, and strategies for protecting assets. If you are interested in attending, you can call the Attleboro Council on Aging at 774-203-1900. Are you looking for more opportunity? The Literacy Center is here to help. 
We have free year-round classes in English, computer literacy, and high school equivalency. With the help of teachers and tutors, you can prepare for your citizenship test, make a resume, get ready for college, or learn how to speak better English. Classes held during the day, evening, or on Saturdays. View our website, theliteracycenter.com, or call 508-226-3603. The Literacy Center, building a better community. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. Uh, we're in studio with uh, Professor uh, Francisco Fraguns. You know, I think it's kind of fitting. We just heard the Literacy Center uh, advertisement for uh, you know, c- uh, citizenship test. Uh, they do a lot of programs out there uh, to our listeners at the Literacy Center here in Attleboro. Uh, if you want to learn, um, if you want to, uh, you can go there to practice for, if you're interested in getting your citizenship test, or if you know anyone that's interested in uh, getting their citizenship, you can go to the Literacy Center. They have programs there. Uh, they also do English as a Second Language programs. They, they, they do a lot and for our community. So if anyone's interested, you can check out the Literacy Center. Uh, but, Professor, again, so we're talking about kind of um, you know, through Portuguese gay. We talked about how it's relatable, kind of the, the, these, these immigrant stories. And um, is there anything you'd like to mention about uh, the book or kind of immigration in general before we kind of move on, uh, you know, maybe to current topics and uh, as we progress throughout our interview? Uh, well, uh all uh, immigrant autobiographies, as I indicated uh, before, have uh, have something in, in common. Uh, we all went essentially through the same things, even if we immigrated at different times. Um, not only the slurs, but the uh, uh, something that I would like to sort of uh, bring out. Uh, more forcibly, uh, which is culture shock. Uh, Culture shock is an expression that is often misused uh, because culture shock is actually an illness. Uh, Culture shock is when an immigrant uh, is really suffering uh, mentally, emotionally, uh, for being displaced being out of his uh, uh, of his country, of his culture, of his language, uh, where nothing seems to make sense. Now, most people go through uh, mild forms of this, and uh, we all survive. But once in a while, uh, I've had a member of my family experience this, and I have known so many people. Uh, People sort of turn inward, uh, and uh, and they uh, tend to magnify the bad stuff that happens to them. Uh, what they basically are is homesick. They are homesick. It's a form of disease, and that homesickness. Uh, I mean, if you read some of your some of your listeners might have read. Um, uh, American literature. I was thinking, for example, of My Antonia by Willa Cather, uh, which I reread uh, not long ago. And uh, in that book, there is a, uh, it takes place in Nebraska, and it deals with Bohemian immigrants. Uh, today we would call them Czechs. Uh, and one immigrant uh, uh, actually committed suicide, and he was suffering from 
culture shock. Of course, the term was invented in, in, in the early 1960s. She doesn't use that that, that term, but the uh, but the the uh, the symptoms that, uh, she describes uh, are absolutely uh, perfect. So uh, I wanted to uh, also bring this out because. Um, I did say that immigration is very exper- is very uh, painful, can be very painful, uh, but it can actually be more than painful. It can be tragic, uh, and we all uh, uh, like to uh, concentrate on the positive side of immigration. You know how successful I was. Uh, most of the autobiographies uh, actually are success stories. Uh, although mine uh, is not, even though it could have been, but I wrote it in a way such that uh, I did not mean it. I want to uh, actually write a non-success story or to accentuate the pain of what I had to go through to succeed. Um, So this is extremely important to bring out because we tend to disguise, we tend to minimize you know, when we go back, we want uh, our friends, we want our family to know that uh, everything is wonderful and so on. It isn't. Uh, immigrating, as I said before, especially when you are already an adult, even a young adult, uh, is being torn from your milieu and being transplanted uh, in his famous book, Oscar Handlin the uprooted. It says it all. The idea was, of course, that you were uprooted like a tree uh, from your country, and then you would be successfully transplanted to America and uh, and take root and be successful. But many of those trees did not make it. Uh, not all trees can uh, be replanted and successfully thrive in another environment. And that is culture shock in human terms. So uh, I, I don't want to bring, uh, you know, drama and tragedy to your show, but it's important that we understand, especially that the young people, as I said before, understand that very often uh, their parents and grandparents paid a huge, huge prize to bring them to this country where they might have experienced and hopefully experienced a great deal of success. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's realistic, right? So it's it's there's always two sides. I mean, there are success stories. There are stories of people getting deported. There are stories of people becoming business owners. It's uh, it's not just that success story, like you were you were mentioning. So it, uh, I uh, I echo those remarks. I completely agree. Um. So one thing that we've added to our show, and it's become a kind of a cool question we always ask at the end, and that is, uh, I usually ask my guests, if you could talk to anyone from history, and you can ask them one thing, who would you want to talk to, and uh, what would you want to ask them? Well, uh, I don't know if I will disappoint you and your listeners. Uh, If I had that choice, I would like to talk to my paternal grandmother, who was in New Bedford, who immigrated to New Bedford, and uh, who had a very difficult life. I did uh, not get to know her because she died before my, uh, when my dad was a teenager. Um, I would like to ask her, how did she 
how did she manage to withstand the life that she lived? She immigrated in 1912 or thereabouts with a one-year baby, one-year-old baby. My dad and another uncle were born and baptized in St. John's Catholic Church in New Bedford. They returned to the Azores in 1921 or thereabouts. Upon returning, and due to my grandfather's alcoholism, which of course at the time was considered a defect of character, not an illness, she had to struggle to feed her children, sometimes picking up her husband from the from the streets and, and taking him home, having at times to steal corn to make the children bread because she had nothing. She saw several of her children die of the plague, the bubonic plague. She herself died of the bubonic plague, and on the day that she died, a daughter of hers, who was about to be married, was in her early 20s or late teens, I don't remember now, uh, also died. I would like to give her a big hug. I, I understand, I understand. It's and ask her, how did you manage? Yeah, absolutely. I understand. There's, uh, it's definitely, um, you know, we, uh, you know, at least in my family too, I, we have those family members. You know, it, there's one thing that I always think about. It's the family members uh, you never got to meet, but you hear tons of stories about, you know, and it's, uh, that's something I always think about too is, you know, it just the experiences that, you know, you know, that, that's why even currently when we see what's going on in the southern border and, and, you know, there's certain individuals on the media that talk a certain way or act a certain way in, in a cynical sense. And, and I always like, I, I always say, you know, a lot of people talk the way they do or, or whatnot because they haven't really experienced something like that or don't know anyone who's really gone through uh, the struggles of really immigrating and it's just it's a tragedy it can be a tragedy you know uh, that the process of of getting or trying to better your own life you know and it's uh, it's realistic though so there's uh like you said there's a success and there's also kind of that tragedy sense of that um, combines itself with immigration right because that's just real that's realistically speaking um, so we we have about uh, a few minutes left. Did you want to talk briefly about kind of uh, what, what we mentioned uh, through email and uh, uh, involving you and Charles? Or uh, sure, uh, our son Evan, who is thirty one uh, today, um, was diagnosed with a brain tumor in two thousand and four, uh, and and had treatments for 16 months at uh, Children's Hospital in Boston and uh, Dana-Farber and, and, and Brigham and, uh, and Women's Hospital. And uh, the book came out in 2004, Portuguese Gate did, and I read it. I read it in early 2005, and I got someone to give me Charles's um, uh, email address, and uh, the book uh, touched me so much. And as someone who has also written books, I decided I was going to write, and I wrote from Children's Hospital. I wrote an email to Charles, 
and Charles responded right away, and uh, and then we continued to write to each other, then involving Barbara, his wife, and eventually his daughter, who uh, is a librarian in Australia, uh, Mona. Uh, and this lasted for a decade, and I have uh, these emails collected and uh, and then edited, and it amounts to... Uh, 290 pages double double space uh, and I opened this way uh, uh, dear Charles you don't know me and until I read your book through a Portuguese gates I didn't know you now I feel I do I'm writing to you from children's hospital so on and so on and so on and he responded and like I said, we became good friends. I considered him a great, great friend. Charles, as you know, uh, passed away, uh, and his wife passed away about a week and a half or so after him uh, last year. But for a period of 10 years, we wrote, we talked about his books. Uh, I wrote about his books, published uh, articles about his books, uh, I sent him my autobiography. Uh, he read it. His wife read it. Uh, eventually, Mona would also read it. Uh, we discussed it. Uh, so we talked around what interested him as a writer and what interested me as a professor and also as a bit of a writer. Uh, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. I will always remember Charles and Barbara. And uh, I still, uh, once in a while, write to Mona. Uh, I consider them all great friends, and I felt his and Barbara's passing very deeply. Absolutely. I would like to thank uh, Mona as well for uh, helping kind of put me in, in contact with you, and I would also like to thank you for um, really joining us today and talking about kind of the Portuguese immigrant experience, some obviously tough experiences, so I'd like to thank you. Um, I would also like to say thank you for writing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of writers out there. Uh, you're, the, the writings really inspire people, really motivate people, and it's uh it's doing it's 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 a public good really uh, the writings that you do and that Charles has done it's uh, it's motivating and truly expiring to uh, our youth and even uh, our elders reading uh, your books so I'd like to thank you for that as well. Thank you, Paulo, and thank uh, thanks a lot to your uh, to your audience to your listeners. Uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure uh, speaking with you. Alrighty, thank you so much. We'll be in touch. Thank you. All right. Alrighty, folks. There you have it. That is the Paul Sogiro show. We ran a, a couple minutes over, but we're gonna um, wrap things up today. Uh, next week, we're just gonna be kind of like the traditional kind of DJing uh, type of show. We'll do kind of this day in history and whatnot, and how our typical shows do when we don't have uh, guests scheduled. So that's gonna wrap it up for today. We've heard from uh, Mr. Lawrence uh, Burgreen, talked about Capone. We also heard from Professor. Uh, Francisco for guns talking about uh, the books Portuguese immigration and whatnot so next week we'll be here again three to five and remember if you have hats and mittens you can drop it off here at WCS uh, studio on uh, 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 Union Street so uh, that's gonna wrap it up for today so thank you everyone and have a wonderful if I can figure out this <laughs> a wonderful weekend <laughs>